Hello, and welcome to Responsible, a podcast series in which senior leaders from all walks of life tell us about the experiences that made them and the wisdom they'd like to pass on. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Jackie Lee Joe. Jackie has had a spectacular global career in marketing and branding, rising from a brand manager at Virgin Mobile to being a global director of partnerships with entertainment at Skype, then tapped to be the chief marketing officer of the BBC and later seduced away by Reed Hastings to serve in the same global role for Netflix. I know her, however, as one of the mums from school. We both have three boys who grew up together at the same Montessori school in North London. She is several standard deviations above average in terms of her energy and enthusiasm, and I feel lucky to call her my friend. Thank you for joining me all the way from Australia. I'm so glad to have you, and I'm so glad to have you in my life. Oh, and you too. Same back at you, Celia. When I was coming up with the list of people who I wanted to interview for this first series, you were really near the top of my list because you've been someone I've known for a long time and whose career I've always admired. And, you know, maybe we can start with that. You know, when we met, you worked at Skype and then you went to the BBC and then you went to Netflix and you've had a fantastic international career. Do you want to tell me a little bit about those transitions and, you know, how you've, how you've planned all these amazing moves you've made? You know, I think, I think Celia, a lot of my journey in life has been very unplanned. (laughs) And I always say that my kind of journey through life has been pretty much driven by a couple of things. One is, and I think this possibly comes from growing up in the sleepy suburbs of Sydney, but I have a really acute case of FOMO. And I think this is a very antipodean trait. And I think in my instance, it's kind of led to us wanting to see the world and and learn from and, you know, really meet people and kind of grow into the world. And and so that FOMO has driven a lot of the choices that we've made in life, I think. And and it's about it's about the journey of career, but it's much more than that. Of course, it's about the life journey, I think, that has really driven a lot of our changes. And so actually as a as a couple, Rob, my boyfriend come husband, we have done Sydney Melbourne, Sydney, New York, London, Sydney, London, together. That's driven a perpetual sense of wanderlust. And I think we have both benefited from meeting and getting to know people like you that have had, you know, like-minded experiences, right, where we've kind of transitioned and really learned and appreciated different cultures, different ways of living. And I think I bring that into how I think about leadership and fostering culture. And then that FOMO also extends into a vocational one. You know, I think that a lot of my need to be where the action is has led to working across a number of industries that have been either ripe for or in the middle of, you know, transformation, starting off with aviation in the mid to late 90s where we saw the the coming of e-business, you know, direct booking engines, the start of deregulation, and really over a five-year period, the, you know, the disintermediation of whole tiers of retailing and wholesaling within that industry. From there, I flipped into, you know, everything from overseeing the launch of the first uh, smartphone with Microsoft, the SPV, and with Orange in 2002, through to working on the launch of iPhone 1 with Carphone Warehouse, and then with Virgin in mobility, and then flipping across 
to over-the-top communications, which is where we met at Skype, really. From there, I kind of flipped into the BBC. So I went from really a number of kind of disruptors and transformers in the industry to being the disrupted and really thinking about the power of the BBC and its IP and the strength of that and the value of that when you unleash that into a world of digital. And then, of course, I flipped back uh, to being part of the disrupted with Netflix. So, you know, really that's by and large been uh, the cut and thrust of the journey. And FOMO and serendipity has pretty much driven most of that journey. You've talked a lot now about the types of things that you've done and characterize the industry and why those industries were exciting to you at the time. But let's talk a little bit about people, right? Like over the course of your career, you've managed teams that go up to how many people, you know, at most have you managed? Up to 800 people. Yeah. So it's a pretty big spread of teams. So how, do, how does one do that? Yeah. How, do, how does one manage 800 people? And what does the idea of managing those people or leading those people responsibly mean to you? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's fair to say in, in, in that world where you've got such enormous teams, part of your job is to work with those teams to bring them together to build up a shared sense of vision and purpose. You know, this is not a, a situation where you can do it on your own. Actually, what you want to do, particularly when you're working in industries that have a lot of transformation at the heart of it, is that you are actually trying to collectively solve for a problem. I think what you're trying to do at the same time is is really hope to get to a moment where you are in bringing that shared vision together building agency with them and for them, you know, because this is about setting context, not control. This is about being able to relinquish control, but to be able to kind of work with those teams in order to kind of navigate the responsibilities that go with that and being able to have them understand what's going on in market and set agenda based on that shared vision that you're putting together in a shared set of values. And so that notion of accompaniment, which I really really like, you know, which I've been listening to Jacqueline uh, Novogratz talk about, you know, that notion of living and walking with and building agency with your team is vitally important to me. And then alongside that, you know, in a world of constant innovation, you want your teams to be switched on and understanding that at any moment they might need to rethink things, unlearn things, adapt to things. And so trying to foster a culture across the teams of, continuous curiosity and learning and, you know, canvassing for a different perspective is also part of a culture that you're trying to, to really cultivate. I know that you've, you've managed, I mean, not even in COVID, but before COVID for many years, managed teams that were very globally distributed and virtually managed, right? What are, the, what are the tools or strategies that you use to communicate that vision and bring people on board and be accessible when you're not physically co-located? Yeah. In the pre-COVID world, you try to give as much face time as possible. I think it's very important, particularly as you're starting to set um, strategy together to give the time and attention to be with people, to listen to people and to kind of enable that two-way dialogue as much as possible. Now, clearly you can't always be there 
And so, you know, we employed a lot of uh, tools in terms of listening tools, things like Culture Vibe or Culture Amp, we would always apply because we wanted to hear on an ongoing basis what was going on, what feedback we were getting to make sure that we were able to address that feedback at the manager level. And those sorts of tools really resonate with our younger team members who want to be able to put perspective out, who need to feel like they're being heard and and who need to uh, understand that we can address those problems in real time. Can you just describe a little bit how the how those tools work? Like what is Culture Vibe and Culture Amp for people that don't know? Well, they enable you to to take more of a, a weekly assessment of how you're feeling. And they give you multiple dimensions um, that might have to do with satisfaction, you know, health, you know, a, a number of dimensions that more holistically can give you a read of how people are doing. I think in this day and age where, you know, particularly as uh, in light of what we've just gone through, understanding a much more holistic view on people and how they're, how they're going is more acutely important than ever before. Then there are options in order be, to be able to provide more direct and qualitative feedback. And so you've got a combination of quant and qualitative mechanisms for, for gaining that feedback. And if people have particular issues, either with the food or with whatever, all of that is, is there for them to be able to voice an outline. I've worked with organizations that can be hesitant to receive feedback because there's certain types of feedback that they are not so interested in hearing. There's a hesitation about soliciting feedback because they're worried they're going to hear things that they either feel they can't do anything about or don't want to do anything about. So it makes them feel safer not to ask. How, how would you give advice to help people feel safe to open up? Say like, it's actually not so scary to ask. Yeah, it's, it's not so scary to ask and sometimes there are things that you are not going to be entirely able to address and, you know, it's almost better to be upfront and authentic about that. There are also ways of providing more constructive feedback and I think that there's also good guidance that you want to give your teams around that so that, you know, we are able to effectively address them and, and we can get to constructive outcomes. But you want to be able to do as much of it in the day-to-day as you possibly can and usually find that you know, even if it's a little niggle, if you're actually on it and addressing it much more in the moment, then you have a much better chance of being able to get to a good result. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit more about your career. So what do you consider your proudest professional accomplishment and what do you consider the biggest challenge that you've overcome? The one I'm most proud of is my time at the BBC. In particular, at looking at, you know, brands that were really great and amazing brands, but lived much more in that linear world. So one good example of that is the work that we did on BBC Earth, which is a wonderful portfolio brand for our factual content. And it is a true strength of the BBCs. And, you know, when I walked into the Beeb in... um, 2015, it was all about super premium drama at that moment, you know, House of Cards, you know, really big, amazing um, scripted pieces. 
And when you look down the barrel of being in a public service organisation that doesn't always have the money to invest in those massive super premium drama pieces, do they do amazing work in scripted. But where we could really zag, where everyone was zigging, was much more around super premium factual, in particular around our natural history uh, content slate. And so, you know, for, for me, a lot of the work was looking at how we deepened that portfolio, how we looked at a longer term view of that, and how we built out some more franchisable, scalable properties out of our Planet series. Um, and one of the initial conversations I actually had when I walked through the door was to talk to the production team about why Planet Earth 2 should be called Planet Earth 2 and what that could look like in a world of Planet Earth 2, Blue Planet 2 and so forth. And what we did then was to look at that amazing content, four years in the making of it, with an unbelievable set of committed and deeply expert showmakers. And how could we take that and really bring it out to new audiences on digital platforms? And so we spent a lot of time looking at how to reimagine um, different stories around Planet Earth 2 as original shows for Snap. How do we think about a landscape of storytelling that is not 16 by 9 but is 9 by 16? And how could you develop more intimate storytelling of little creatures like rifle birds as opposed to always the big kind of blue whale extravaganzas? How could you take that connection between nature and watching natural history content and feeling like you're more connected and pro-social and the reduction of stress. How could you take those learnings and put them into AI bot-driven messenger, you know, applications for moments of happiness? And how could you extend that into Google Earth with its new 3D version of the of the product to overlay 30 different uh, locations across six habitats across the Google Earth um, product. How could you realize it in AR and VR? How could you expand it into podcasts? How could you build out a much more user-generated, amazing kind of capture of the Earth and put it into your platforms? And then how do you broaden out the messages coming out of that content into new audiences and take it into popular culture? And so we teamed up with Hans Zimmer and Radiohead and Hans Zimmer and Sia and brought it out to a more interesting uh, spectrum of music lovers and music press. We did a collaboration with um, Netta Porte and with um, Mother of Pearl to do a sustainable collab that went out for London Fashion Week. How do you come up with all those ideas? I mean, that's a lot, a lot of ideas. Well, firstly, I've done uh, partnerships at at uh, at Skype, so you naturally think about uh, that. You know, the, in the case of Skype, you think about the dimensions of group video calling and live broadcasting and what that can bring to bringing people access for the first time to press tours. You can finally bring fans in. Or you could co-create new formats so we could enable, use those capabilities to say, actually, we can co-create whole new entertainment formats and we can bring 30 people from 30 different countries around the world live on stage to sing with a live choir on TED for that final moment of TED. 
the thing about the BBC is it has a quality and a craft of its content. It should be rightfully proud of. And there is a true value in that IP that is is a benefit, right, to all of these partner platforms that you might want to extend into. And it's partly about realising the value of that and then giving permission to the teams and basically kind of reframing it in a way that kind of excites and sparks new ideas. And then that team goes off and does amazing things, right? They went, partnered with Airbnb, we did a night of. We knew that some of the themes of Blue Planet 2 were going to resonate. We did education partnerships. We actually worked with marine conservation and plastics um, agencies to kind of spread out the message. And you find that these things organically adopt, but you've got, you know, part of your job is to bring energy to it, bring a few ideas to the table, and then you let your team do the rest. Well, you're, you're very good at bringing energy uh, <laughs> to all the rooms that you're in. What about your biggest challenge? What's been the hardest thing? You know, the thing about leadership is that you can be really capable of, of, of building a vision that is exciting and mobilizing a team around it and, and kind of moving people. But you also have that responsibility of being able to see what's going on around the corner, anticipate what's happening and, and kind of try to navigate your team, you know, um, you know, through that. And I think probably where I've had my biggest failure is not being able to call that early enough, not being able to read that. And as a result, not being able to, if you like, soften the ground in which we we then had to land in order to kind of move in a different direction. And I worked on a project at Skype where I was incubating a whole new product, a uh, consumer-facing one, and I built up the team. So we were very much a startup within a scale-up, if you like. And you've got a level of commitment there with that team, and they're going to run through hoops with you and really kind of, you know, keep that going for as long as possible and and you really drive towards that outcome. And yet the product that we we're building was just not right for the moment we we're in with Skype where we were needing to transition into the cloud and needing to kind of scale that solution. And I just didn't call it early enough. And I think it's a big, you know, the biggest failure is quite often failures in leadership where you haven't called it, should have called it earlier, should have thought about it earlier, anticipated it and, and pivoted it. In the end, when it did come down, it came down like a massive, it was a massive drop. You know, I could have lessened that blow had I caught it earlier. It meant that we had, you know, really had to stop in our tracks and and mourn, you know, the project that we're working on. And then it's a much bigger job to kind of pivot away to a new thing and pick up a team and remobilize them and kind of build new energy. I could have made that a much easier job, a much easier process um, had I caught it early. I think it's a big learning for me. I'm interested in, in, in what you learned growing up. So I know that you're one of many siblings. Six. So one I, of feel six. Like, I feel like you learned responsibility at an early age. <laughs> I was the eldest of six. Yes, you're right. <laughs> so, so what do you feel like the most important lessons are from the people who raised you? So I think I had a really interesting parental combination, Celia. I think on the one side, my mother was relentlessly driving force. Like she, the energy that I have, uh, I've absolutely inherited from her. And she coupled that with a, you know, a fearlessness and a fierceness. And I think, I think I've definitely learned 
a few tricks of the trade from my mother. And what she brought in spades is that spirit of independence and the spirit for new adventure. She's a very independent woman and she, she knows her own mind and she's got, she's got the kind of energy and vigour to kind of see it through. And in the case of her six children, she did manage to micromanage the lives of her six children and, and, and kind of pull them through. And she made choices, you know, around pulling people out of school and pulling people into new things or challenging us to kind of like she physically challenged me to get into a music high school. Those sorts of those kind of hard tasks and big goal setting, those things definitely came from my mother. My father was was actually a really gentle soul in comparison. So you had this very fierce maternal dimension and influence on this side. And then on my father's side, you had a really kind and gentle soul. And I think from him, I hope I learned much more about kindness and generosity and gratitude um, from my father. And, you know, in terms of, I think, the most important advice that has really stayed with me has kind of come from my father who really, I mean, I think my work ethos partly comes from him. He worked right the way through um, his whole life. But he was also really in gratitude and constant gratitude of sacrifices that were made on his behalf by his older brothers. You know, he was the ninth child of 13. So eldest is six ain't nothing, Celia, compared to the ninth of 13. God, that's a pecking <laughs> order if ever um, you heard of one. But he grew up in the war years and didn't start school till nine and didn't think he would ever finish school. In fact, worked three years to kind of before he even walked back into, if you like, um, final years of school. And it was his brothers that saved up the money to, you know, ship him out to New Zealand so he could do his final year. And then from there he went um, to university on scholarship and worked the whole way through but was always grateful, would always in car journeys tell me about how grateful he was uh, to his brothers, always tried to look out for them and their families because he knew how much he owed to them. And I think I think those sorts of things, those sorts of lessons I've learned indelibly, I think, from my father. And I hope I take that into my family. Well, and we're both, I mean, we know each other's families. We know each other from the drop-off line at a Montessori nursery. <laughs> Me too. But I think that that's actually really important because I, in all of the now thousands of MBA students I've taught, um, especially the women really want to understand, need more models of how is it that, you know, you and I both have three boys, we both have international careers, we both have very supportive spouses, but how do we, I mean, I don't know that I always do it very well at all. I think all of us doubt that sometimes about ourselves, but for you, what are the ways of managing those multiple stakeholders, right, in, a, in the fairest way so that we deliver everything that we can to our career and still manage to to have family lives that are stable and happy and, you know, it's a hard thing to do. It's a really hard thing to do. I remember looking back on the eve of turning 40 and thinking, I am still not quite sure how I made it through that last decade, right? And and 
I think part of it, you know, part of it is having the confidence. Like I took a year off for each of um, my young men, but then I changed jobs after each maternity leave. And that's probably one of those pivot points where you kind of go, oh, do I just make it easy for myself and kind of go back into the same um, situation because I know it? I think part of part of it for me was weirdly in 12 months, the 12 months that I took in maternity leave, I had this manic energy to do new things. And I, I think I also really understood the value of my time in that, you know, respect, right, that if I was going to go back into work, I wanted suitable challenge because I was giving up time that I would have had with the boys and I needed to kind of balance that out a little bit more. So, in fact, if anything, it kind of unleashed my energy for new challenges uh, when I came out of my my maternity leave. So, in fact, I did three jobs after each of my maternity leaves. And part of it was, again, it was kind of what, why, why the hell not? Let's just go do it. And I think part of our ethos, Robert and I, has been that let's just give it a go uh, mentality that has kind of weirdly seen us through. But I think what you do when you've got three children, as you know, is you've got to be much more uh, able to switch off work in your life and switch on to whatever you need to do with your family. I think that what what um, what we've managed to do well is to say the weekends are really for the boys. We don't really give that in to work unless on the odd occasion we've got to, you know, be elsewhere for work. But even within work, I think always the boundaries for us has been that we try to keep it within that work week. We try never to extend our work trips into weekends. And that can be really challenging when part of your team is stateside and you're based in London and you're having to straddle that aspect. And then to your point, it couldn't have been done without an amazing partner in life, you know, who was willing to shoulder the burden and certainly wanted me to be able to take it as far as I could take it and was never begrudging of that and was always encouraging of that. And I think that none of this is possible without that and without that understanding between us that when it didn't work for him to go to the States, we didn't go to the States. Quite often our choices have been about uh, the balance of the push and pull of who needed what at which particular point in our our time relationship and we've managed to straddle that between us. I also think, I don't know if this is true of you, but uh, having three children is also good practice in relinquishing control. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) If one of the leadership skills that you talked about earlier was, you know, how to manage large teams and relinquishing control, I think we learn a lot of that from parenting. Yes, and, and the three, you know, having three of them really means that quite often it doesn't stack in your favor. (laughs) <laughs> um, right. <laughs> We've, uh, I've been voted off the island a few times, Celia, in my time with the children. <laughs> they have learned how to unionize. They've actually learned some really effective systems. Um, and, and my, my mistake has been to underestimate them, Celia, as I've kind of, uh, walked through to think that all my tough negotiations might actually happen, uh, in the work life. And in fact, of course, to realize that no, <laughs> not even remotely. <laughs> it's all in the family environment. Oh, I think someone needs to write a book about the lessons about leadership you learn from parenting. 
I will, I will never forget one day when um, Jasper, my eldest, was like five and he came into the bedroom on a Saturday morning at like 5.30 or 6 and I didn't want to get up then. Now I get up then all the time, but and I didn't <laughs> want to get up. And, and he said, I want to ask if I can turn on the TV, but before you say no, I want you to think of this as not giving me time, but me giving you time. And I just remember thinking like, oh my God, your, your negotiation skills are, I bow down to you. <laughs> Go turn on television. So it, yeah, I think, I think we all learn a lot from, from having kids. And I don't think that that's, a, that's, that's, those are leadership lessons that have been valued enough right? Because there haven't, because no. the, the leaders that we, that we look to as models often won't talk, you know, don't talk about that or didn't, weren't very active parents or the liter- literature shows that male leaders are much, much, much like by four times more likely to have a stay-at-home spouse than, than female leaders. Yeah. And then that's certainly probably, or it's definitely my real life experience of um, most of the execs that I you know, I have worked alongside. But, you know, I think, to your point, you learn other invaluable lessons along the way, and I love a touch of chaos, and they certainly bring it. I also love the fact that they're, you know, that they're thinking like a tribe a little bit. You know, you hope that they're going to, you know, bring some of those more collectivist elements uh, together and 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 hold to some of that as they kind of grow up. We certainly did. I certainly did with my five siblings. So this next part is meant to be answered sort of quickly and a way to get to know you as a person in a few sharp questions. So the the, the first question is, what is your favorite work of fiction and why? So recently, I'd say Song of Achilles and Circe by Madeline Miller. But I think the ones that always stay with you are the ones that you've kind of grown up with. And so they'd be things like Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, which consumed one of my holidays. Pride and Prejudice. Can't help myself. To Kill a Mockingbird, those sorts of things. But, you know, I love biography as well as fiction. So tell me about this most recent one, this most recent book. I don't know it. Oh, Song of Achilles and Circe. Mm Mm-mm. Oh, it's a retelling. Circe is a retelling of her tale. So it's Greek mythology, but done from Circe's perspective. So it's a really refreshing retelling uh, of the story, the age-old story, and it's it's a brilliant read. You should definitely, definitely pick it up. I have I have an active book club, so uh, I will recommend it. <laughs> what is your favorite secret skill? I don't know if I have a... But I, I kind of call it a superpower, which is I have the ability to sleep whenever and wherever if I can. And I also have the ability not to sleep if I have to. And I think that has made me a relatively successful international jet setting person um, because I rarely ever get jet lag. That is a good talent, right? That is that is a great superpower. Yes, I know. I I've often thought that one of the only advantages, because you and I are both, you know, height challenged. Um, yes. That one of the best <laughs> benefits of being challenged in terms of height is that I can fit in any airplane seat, no matter where it is. I say the same thing. I'm like, I can sleep in economy. That's easy. Yeah. yeah. Right? I can. I can sleep in economy in the middle seat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you have a personal motto? I don't. 
But as you know, I said earlier, FOMO has really been what set the agenda for me. What is your favorite word? Well, the other thing that set the agenda for me is serendipity. I've been very lucky, I think, in a lot of things that have happened in my life and um, um, and grateful for them. And, and I think, you know, at the same time, because I've been open to things and willing to, to, to kind of think about them as they've come my way, I've been able to, you know, really take advantage and kind of move with the flow. And I think that's also... Uh, work to my advantage. So th- the last question in this section is, if you if you had to do something entirely else with your life, what would that be? But you're in a in a transitional period right now, so maybe it's the opportunity to actually do those things. I'd always wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I'm not sure I could make that pivot. That feels like a, a pretty extreme pivot now, <laughs> Celia. But in this next decade because I'm on the verge of the next one, I have been thinking a lot more about impact on, you know, my children, my children's children, and where do I kind of think about what I can do alongside that. So so some of the things that I'm working on relate more to sustainable mobility or to sustainable affordable food. And then some of the other stuff that I'm working on right now are really about building Gen Z and millennial products and money and understanding that in this new world of digitally disrupted money, there are opportunities, but there are also risks that we won't bring everyone along with us. And so I'm consciously thinking about that in some of the product work that I'm doing right now. And so I hope that I'll be able to to spread and participate in having impact in in a myriad of ways. I'm sure you will. It's a lot of fun too. <laughs> well, you're very, you're really good at that. You know, I think that you're really good at making sure that when you do things professionally, that they're fun. I think that's part of your uh, way of being in the world. Yeah, and and I hope I you know I hope we all collectively have more fun for it. If you get what I mean, it's partly about sparking creativity, having fun along the way. And, and maybe mentally trying to stimulate ourselves collectively around purpose. You know, it's a combination of things you try to find, try to strive for, really, if you can do it. These last few questions really look to the future. So we've talked a little, we've talked a lot about technology, right? So what are the opportunities you see and what worries do you have about the way the future will be technology-led? You know, I think a lot of the challenges around technology just really relate to you know, you can barely keep up with it, let alone take the time to really reflect on some of the manifestations or the implications of what we're creating. I think that worries me more than everything, uh, anything else. I think that, you know, we owe it to, our, to ourselves to be much more rigorous around interrogating the technologies that we are benefiting from and trying to better understand them. And you know, as with all technologies, it's a matter of what what maketh them, right? So when you're looking at biometric or face facial recognition technology, you want to make sure that that you're really understanding the benefits of it, but also really interrogating the potential uses for it. So more transparency in terms of you know privacy obligations, or really understanding whether we can really design products and algorithms that can correct for any racial or gender 
biases. You know, it's it's much more about being able to ensure that we have more sight and are more inclusively building some of these capabilities so that we are benefiting all as opposed to inadvertently benefiting some. It's the same when you look at AI, you know, and needing to make sure that you're, again, interrogating whether you're building and correcting for any potential biases or flaws. And it's the same with social media platforms and really trying to get the right balance, of course, between content moderation and, you know, freedom for public discourse. You know, those sorts of challenges are things that we need to look look at. And I think that we need to all go into it a lot more consciously because, of course, the implications for the world are far-reaching and, of course, there are responsibilities back in terms of displacement of workforce and obligations in terms of thinking much more thoughtfully about reskilling, reapplication. You know, how do we uh, ensure that we are moving people into new territories, new areas where they can be gainfully, purposefully and productively employed? What has been the hardest thing for you about leading through COVID-19? I think what was difficult, particularly in a world where you had teams everywhere, was that there was different levels of intensity, different levels of stress going on in different parts of the world continuously, but at different paces, at different stages, you know, and and really being able to, to help teams navigate their way through a set of micro macro dimensions that, you know, went well beyond the business. You know, when people have to absolutely think about everything from personal safety, you know, worrying about the broader implications even than, than the, you know, the, the potential for getting COVID, that, that we were able to balance up that. I think it made me rethink kind of a lot of the ethos of tech companies, which is to move fast and relentlessly forward. This was a moment where we actually needed to pause and really take much more time and care to understand where people were, to take those opportunities to be much more generous and listening and really being more responsive than we've ever been before. You know, I've not had a situation there's been so much anxiety and tension and mental health wrought upon your collective teams at any point in time. And it's made me rethink a lot about how we operate in a post-COVID world more than anything else. These are where the lessons of your dad will come in handy. Yes, exactly. And and I think it's, it's you know, for everyone, of course, it's forced you to, to reflect and 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 really rethink things, and that's a good thing. I also think that, you know, there's great value in how that more collectivist approach that Australia took around, you know, really thinking of others and, and you know, and, 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 and working to the benefit of the, the broader collective actually played out. I think keeping a sense of community and shared energy is really hard. I think that a lot of the certainly the the first part of COVID and I was uh, was running at Netflix and, you know, we we were able to come together because we had a shared sense of doing things that we knew were going to be helpful to people, that we were actually 
useful and that being useful we had a we had a reason for being and I think to a degree those senses of shared purpose actually helped um, keep us uh, going and energized and I, I think that 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 helped keep the community go- going but it's it's difficult to do that when you're running it out of Australia at two o'clock in the morning and you've got many many people around the world and you're in a, a little bit of a a, a kind of a COVID free bubble over here and yet so much stress is going on around the world the ability to connect felt much more distanced and 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 digital has that way of abstracting things and 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 so you have to put you know a lot more time and energy of course into trying to maintain authentic connection I, I I have been managing a much smaller team but globally dispersed PhD students and I have to say as someone who was in a in a country that was managing the pandemic less well. My student who has decided to to weather it out in Taiwan, there were several days that I was internally just so deeply jealous. Yes, <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> and it became hard to like, I want to help you with your doctorate, but right now I just need to see silently that you can go outside. I know. I know. I know. You know, we did think about that as a recruitment strategy. It's like, oh, every time we should like have it somewhere on the beach and have lots of people behind us and that would work. We'd attract talent back down to Australia. Oh my God. Yeah, it's a good it's a good recruiting strategy for Australia. <laughs> it's a good recruitment strategy. Yeah, it's been such an interesting time out of Australia where we really only had certainly in Sydney, we really only had the kids on Zoom schooling for three and a half weeks, pretty much total. Um, so it's been a very surreal experience here as, as compared to everyone else. My last question is what, what gives you the most hope for the future? Well, right now I'm spending a lot of time looking at Gen Z and millennial audiences for what I'm looking at in this financial services product. And I'm really, actually really heartened about what I'm seeing, you know, what you've got is a generation couple of generations, maybe multiple, we're almost onto Gen Alpha now, aren't we, who are thinking for themselves, who understand a lot more than I certainly did growing up, the complexities of the world in which they are going to be taking on. So I see a lot more thinking about that, taking perspective and actually doing doing something about it and doing something about it in a more collaborative and maybe even sometimes a more collectivist way. And I think that that ability to to take responsibility for things that maybe generations before have not taken enough accountability or thought around is is actually a hopeful thing. Yeah, though, well, they're going to have to. Well, sadly, it is, you know, it is, it is the way of things. And when I'm looking at it right now, I'm looking at it with financial services, all of those normative visions of success. I mean, honestly, totally different now, right? And being able to get a grip on that and understand that systems are becoming much more disintermediated and more expanded and they're tricky and complex things that the generations after us are going to have to think through and work through together. Thank you so much for taking the time at night to speak to me. Uh, Any excuse I get... Of course, I always love speaking to you. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to seeing you soon. It's a pleasure, Celia. 
Responsible is a podcast from the Center for Responsible Leadership at Imperial College Business School and is sponsored by City. Created with audio and editing support from Jack Monahan and Robert Moutry, who are Prompt Productions. I'm Celia Moore. I'll see you next time.